Welcome to the Dissolving Fear Podcast, where anxiety and doubt don't run the show. You do. So let's dissolve some fear up in here and make room for growth. I'm your host, Alyssa, bringing you proven tools and inspirational interviews to build your forward momentum toward your best life, full of whatever you value and desire. When it comes to fear, I love exploring the many ways that we can all dissolve it and evolve. I've been a Kripalu yoga teacher for 20 years, and I encourage you to nurture yourself in order to maximize your potential. Follow this podcast. You'll love the results. Loving life is what we're all about on the Dissolving Fear podcast and at MissAlyssa.com. Enjoy the show. No need to go to the doctor this week because I am bringing the doctor to you. That's right. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Russell Kennedy, the Anxiety MD, about his book and about how to heal anxiety, which he calls ALARM. And ALARM is an acronym that kind of illustrates how we create anxiety and store it in our bodies from the time we're children. So if you want to grow stronger and more resilient despite anxiety and even trauma, tune in to the episode today. Dr. Russ is really fun to talk to. And I ask him questions like, why are we anxious? Why do we hold anxiety in our body and mind? Why do we get stuck in analysis paralysis on this hamster wheel of thoughts and overthinking? And how can we heal our anxiety? So tune into the episode. It's going to be amazing. I was so excited about it that I'm actually publishing it a few days early. And I know I'm not the only one who gets excited about the Dissolving Fear podcast because I've been looking at the analytics and the numbers. And I just want to say thank you so much to all of the podcast subscribers. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Feel free to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or find me on social media and DM me some ideas for future podcasts. I'm on social media at miss.alyssa.shirk. And I've put links in this episode description in case you want to look me up on missalyssa.com or send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. But for now, let's hear from Dr. Russell Kennedy, the anxiety MD who wrote the book, Anxiety Rx. Here we go. So Dr. Kennedy, I just listened to your podcast episode about uncertainty on your podcast, Anxiety Rx. And it made me think that, you know, uncertainty is what causes 99.9% of my anxiety. And I think a lot of us think of fear as fight or flight and a tiger is chasing you. And the thing is, nowadays in modern times, we have that same physical response to anxiety, but the causes are different. We're not getting chased. It's more of uncertainty in life that's causing our anxiety. I have a thing in my book that says, you know, ancient man, you know, primitive man feared is, is uh, predators and modern man fears his creditors. So it, it is one of those things where it's most of our most of our threats now are internal. They're not external. They're not physical. Most of our threats are created by ourselves. So if we realize that we can get a, a sort of a degree of separation from our own worries and fears, but you know, it's compulsive. Worry is addictive. Worry, worry triggers the same kind of addictive chemicals as, you know, morphine does. So we it, we are addicted to worry. So when we get faced with uncertainty, rather than just saying this is uncertain, we we make up a horrible story to make sense of the uncertainty, which it only makes us feel worse. And then it just starts this cycle where we just can't get out of it. So we're addicted to the worry because we we would prefer a worry in real in real sense, we would prefer a worry to just leaving it uncertain because of typically what how how excruciating uncertainty was when we were children, we never want to go back to that uncertain place again. So instead we trade worry, which is just as bad, if not worse. 
Yes. And so our worry and our overthinking ends up being strangely comforting and the predictable factor in uncertain times, but it is bad for our health. And I'm so happy to have you on the show to talk about your book, Anxiety Rx, and to talk about yoga, which both of us love and so much more. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Alyssa. I know that we're both certified yoga teachers, and I want to hear all about how you discovered yoga. But first, I have a brief history of your life and how you became a neuroscientist and an MD. And I know um, your wife is also a genius when it comes to trauma and dissolving fear and anxiety, right? She's a professional. Yeah, she's a somatic experiencing therapist. So she's a trauma specialist. She really specializes in people who have had pre-verbal trauma, like trauma before the age of seven years old. So you don't have a story about it so much. You know, if something happens to you when you're 12 and you're, say your dad dies, your mom gets cancer or something like that, you have a story about it to work with. But in a lot of people whose trauma is pre-verbal before seven, that's what Cynthia really specializes in and going in through the body and seeing where the sensations are in the body. So I have that too, as far as um, the anxiety thing goes, the alarm, where do you find, where do you have it in your body? Because it, I think that's the way, that's the way that we really and truly access the root cause. We can, we can talk about it. You know, we have these, these two parts of our brain. Well, there's more than that, but one's called the neocortex, which is the new brain. And that's our, our thinking brain that understands words and language. And the other one is the subcortex, which is, you know, amygdala, uh, brainstem, you know, body essentially. And none of those things uh, understand language. So when you're in therapy and you're speaking with someone who's using language to assess these old pre-verbal traumas, you're not really going to get very far typically. So it's really understanding that we can use the body as a much more effective means to heal the mind than trying to use the mind to heal the body. Because the, the part of us that, that stores these programs doesn't understand words. It doesn't comprehend words. So when you speak words to it, it gets the general idea, but it doesn't really change things enough to really change your, your anxiety or your alarm. And that's, that's why I say you can't, you can't change a feeling problem with a thinking solution. I love your term alarm because I feel like it describes what causes anxiety as well as how anxiety affects our body. Because alarm, you can maybe talk about the terms um, and the acronym, but I work with children who had adverse childhood experiences, and when I saw the alarm, I thought, oh, well, that's exactly what a lot of my students experience is in a nutshell, is A for abuse, L for loss, A for abandonment, R for rejection, and M for anything that makes you mature too fast. So I love your acronym alarm because it describes the causes of anxiety but then it describes the feeling of anxiety itself yeah that's you know that's how i got through med school was using was using acronyms so if you see my med school notes they're all like i made different words out there was one time i i used this word uh vindicate as a differential diagnosis so it's vascular infectious neoplastic uh, degenerative. And so I had this whole, I had all the categories, all nine categories. So whenever uh, one of the staff people, one of my, my superiors on the team would ask me a question, I would just go through that in, in my mind and I would just sort of, and then I wound up winning the uh, internal medicine award at graduation. Basically when you ask like, why am I, why do I do this? Okay. So uh, I was born into a family. My mother is a rather uh, reserved uh, Scottish registered nurse. Uh, my father was schizophrenic and bipolar. So neither of them really knew how to how to connect with me. I was a really sensitive child. So I developed this anxiety, you know, throughout my teens, young teens, older teens, that kind of thing. And I couldn't find real a lot of help for it. So I, I eventually had to look at, okay, how do I heal myself from this? Now, this is many, many years later. So that's basically how I got into it was the traditional therapy wasn't helping me. Medications weren't helping me. 
I've got to find a way of healing this. So I went to India. I lived at a temple in India. I became a yoga teacher, which uh, the short answer of that is I had a girlfriend who was a yoga teacher at the time. And she was in the bathroom one day and just sort of yelled out to me, hey, why don't you become a yoga teacher? It's like, okay. And at that point, that's exactly what happened. And then I think I took the intensive, like 29 days. We did it every day for 29 days in Vancouver with Shakti Mihi and Shakti was amazing and uh, became a yoga teacher and, you know, just tried all these different pathways to healing and all of these things helped. But until I really came upon this alarm theory that, that the, the anxiety is really the state of alarm that's held in your body. And unless you address that state of alarm in your body, through your body, the symptoms really don't go away because the anxiety itself, the worries, the, the rumination is just a byproduct of this alarm. The alarm is what's driving the rumination. It's not like your brain is on its own coming up with this stuff. So really the anxiety in your body is what's driving the thoughts of your mind. And because we're we're such a a numb society to feeling, we don't we start thinking that we can fix everything with the mind. We start going into therapy where we start explaining you know, why, you know, why we're like this. Well, I had a schizophrenic father. I had a mother who wasn't quite as attentive to me as I would have liked. She was still great in a lot of ways. So it was really finding out that anxiety had more to do with what was going on in my body, stored energy in my body, than it was the thoughts of my mind. Thoughts of my mind were just basically a byproduct. And you could fix all, you could fix the thoughts of your mind all you want, but unless you address that alarm in your body and fix that, you're always just going to be kind of on a treadmill, just trying to, you know, think positively and, and be grateful and do all this stuff, which helps, but it doesn't heal you. Yes. Healing is a mind body practice. Healing anxiety is a mind and body endeavor. And I totally agree with the body aspect of it. You suggest that people look at their body and find out where they're feeling anxiety. Um, and I've done that with therapists too. With my little students who've had ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, I try to get them to tune into their body. I like ease them into everything. And I try to get them to tune into their body in just the basic good ways first. You know, are you hungry? Do you want some water? The principal called me their school mom because I'm always just like nurturing them because they are so disconnected sometimes from their body. They don't even yeah. know if they're hungry or if they are thirsty or how they feel. And so that's why I love yoga because when I discovered it at 16, I didn't realize that I was a hypervigilant, traumatized kid. Yeah. I thought I felt fine. But then in yoga, I realized I felt better after yoga. I felt at peace and grounded. And it was this amazing realization. So I try to help the students just feel whatever it is they feel in their body. And then they can hopefully more easily tap into anxiety or when something feels off and it doesn't feel quite right. Yeah. And that's what I say to people. It's like when you're when you're feeling anxious, you know, which is really when you're feeling alarmed, rather than going up into your head and ruminating on what this could be or making all these future, you know, warnings, what ifs, worst case scenarios, you go into your body and go, okay, where do I feel this in my body? Do I feel it in my throat? Do I feel it in my chest? You know, is it in my gut? Where do I feel this alarm? Because that's the root cause of it. Because if you stay in your head and try and figure it out that way, you're you're never going to get out of your head. You just never will. So with kids, you know, I think a lot of anxiety, well, with adults too, is is this mind-body disconnect. So we have this alarm in our body. And because we don't want to feel it, we go up into our heads and we ruminate, we worry. Because on some level, our system sees that as being safer than going back into the old wound, back into the old trauma. So what yoga does is it kind of joins your mind and your body. You know, yoga means to yoke. So it's basically you're, you're joining your mind and your body together. And then in that joining, a lot of the anxiety dissipates because you are feeling connected to yourself, you, to that alarm. And that alarm, I do believe, is your younger self. You know, I think the world is a very energetically active place. And I think when kids are born, I think they feel that without getting too, you know, woo woo or whatever, I think our kids these days are feeling more anxiety from birth than than we ever have. And then unfortunately, we have these screens 
that kids get addicted to and we learn the kids learn that the screen will somehow ease their anxiety a little bit and what that does is it makes them go towards their screen as opposed to having real human interactions and if you don't have real human interactions you don't you don't build what's called the social engagement system in our body and our brain dr dan siegel calls it the human resonance circuitry and if you don't build that, you can't soothe another person and you can't soothe yourself. So the kids go back to the to their screens over and over and over again. And after a while, the screens lose that ability to soothe them. So then they're really they're really uh, at at odds or are at their their wits end because there is nothing left there. You know, they they haven't got this social engagement system matured. And they don't interact with each other. And then they get to be teenagers and the teenagers aren't even, you know, pairing up anymore so much. I mean, it's, it's really, we're becoming this massively disconnected society. We have this, we have, we've never been so comfortable physically in all our human existence, but so disconnected from each other. Yeah. That's why I love yoga because, um, it just helps us self-soothe ourselves physically, do you have other go-to recommendations for my listeners? Maybe one tool or practice that you recommend to clients as far as self-soothing physically, or do you just focus on simple awareness of how you feel inside? That's a bunch of things. Yeah. I mean, it's a bunch of things. I think, I think breath work is amazing. I think just learning and, and Andrew Huberman talks about this. Dr. Huberman talks about the physiological side, you know, two quick sniffs in and then a long, slow exhale why you imagine a tire deflating or something, you know, deflating and just do that like four or five times. And that will bring your body back into connection with your mind as well. So those are the quick fixes, you know, to really heal your anxiety. You have to find that younger version of yourself that was for adults that was wounded and go back and see them, hear them, love them and protect them. That's that's how you heal anxiety at its root cause. There's a bunch of stuff you can do to ease the bodily sensations of anxiety in the short term. But if you want to heal anxiety, if you want to be able to be emotionally regulated, even when things around you are going a little nuts or uncertain, then you have to go out the root cause, which is basically this alarm that's stored in your body and has probably been in there for decades for adults. Connect with yourself connect with your inner child, ask yourself what you need, and then give yourself that love and care. That's a great way to soothe anxiety. And I loved how you talked about the physiological side as a way to interrupt that cycle of uncertainty, anxiety, and worry. The physiological side interrupts that cycle in the moment. And I use it a lot. I have a podcast episode about it and yep. I'll use I call the birthday cake method with little kids and I'll tell them I'm holding a cake. Now sniff it twice, take yeah. a deep breath in and blow out the candles. And I use the physiological side a lot when I'm driving and doing dishes, um, multitasking. Yeah, that's great. That are overstimulating. I just use the physiological side a lot. Yeah. And I tend not, you know, I tend not to use the term inner child as much, you know, because it does, it turns a lot of people off. You know, it does make it sound like it's really woo. And and as trained as a medical doctor with a, you know, a doctorate in medicine and, and a degree in neuroscience, it's kind of hard for me to use that term still. So I usually use the term younger self, you know, rather than inner child, depending on what, if I'm talking to a bunch of yogis, yeah, inner child is fine. But if I'm talking to a general audience, especially like doctors and that kind of thing, I rarely use the term inner child because it, it does tend to set them off a little bit. And the other thing that I just thought about the other day, and someone was telling me about it too, was that, um, you know, if you if you have had wounding when you were young, that inner child term is really going to set you off. Just like, okay, inner child. I don't, I've been pushing my inner child away. You know, people will say, I've been pushing my inner child away for 40 years. I don't want to acknowledge it, you know? So when they hear the term inner child, they go, oh, that's a bunch of woo crap or whatever. But really, you know, the people that are most, I, I find the people that are most, adamantly against this whole inner child woo philosophy are the ones with the most damage from their inner child. So it's not surprising, but it's just, it's really, it's really interesting to see that the people that object to inner, the inner child term so much are the ones that have the most inner child or aces, you know, they have the most. So it's really an interesting kind of dynamic to observe. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you have to meet people where they're at. You know, maybe yeah. some people just want to take their inner child on a walk and they don't want to call it their inner child and yeah. they don't want to deal with it. But just that movement and breathing helps interrupt that cycle of anxiety and overthinking and worry. And yeah. I know in your podcast, you said, um, you know, we have uncertainty from childhood when we just couldn't have faith that things were going to work out in childhood. Exactly. When things were working out, the other shoe was about to drop and things were about to go downhill again. And we don't trust when things are working out that they will continue to go uphill. And that's what makes healing so difficult because when people start feeling better from their, you know, they'll say, you know, I was so anxious and now I'm not so anxious, but there's this disturbing calm now. And I say, well, what was it like? What was calm like when you were a child? It's like, well, I was always waiting for my dad to get drunk again, or I was always waiting for my mom to yell at me or or whatever. So, you know, and I, I draw that back to people. I said, well, if that was your, if that was your childhood experience, that calm was always followed by some sort of catastrophe, of course, your nervous system is going to have a hard time with calm, which which makes it really hard for people to heal. Because as you start healing and you start feeling more calm, you it's suspect like that calm is like, oh, I, you know, when I was younger, they don't think this, you know, in, in so many words, but it's, it's that message that's still inside of our nervous system. Um, when things were calm, it was always followed by some sort of upheaval or terrible event. So why should I allow myself to feel calm? So that's one of the biggest obstacles to healing anxiety is when people start feeling better, they mistrust it. And a lot, a lot of time they will go back to what they know, which is worry, you know? So you get caught in this, in this vortex, uh, like when you're trying to escape, you know, it's like, what is that song about the crabs in the bucket? You know, like when you're trying to, when you're trying to get out, the other ones just keep dragging you back down again. So, yeah. And I think that's one of the, one of the hardest things. And that's why anxiety is so difficult to heal long-term is because, you know, when, when our lives were calm, when we were younger, it was always followed by some kind of catastrophe. So we learn like, you've got to be hypervigilant. And if you're not hypervigilant, something's going to happen. And that's a, that's a, that's a very childhood program. That's a very, you know, subcortical, what they call implicit memory, body memory of the past. That's really impinging on your present day. Because we think that being calm means being vulnerable and we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want uncertainty and we don't want vulnerability. Yeah. But vulnerability is where emotion comes from. Like vulnerability is where true emotion comes from. So if you can't be vulnerable, your emotional life becomes very narrow. So even excitement is, is perceived as anxiety. Um, things that are good are even perceived as anxiety. So our, our emotional window gets narrowed and with anxiety. And when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and we open up to that, we start feeling the nuances of emotion. You know, we start feeling more grief or more sadness or whatever, but we also start feeling more joy. But for a child, you know, those those emotions can be overwhelming if you're used to sort of keeping your life, you know, between a four and a six to use a, a zero out of 10 analogy where zero is the worst you've ever felt and 10 is the best. Um, we anxious people tend to keep ourselves in somewhere between a, you know, a three and a five, because if you allow yourself to go up to a seven and then you drop down to a two, because life does drop down to a two every once in a while, the drop, if you keep yourself at a three, drop down to a two isn't so bad. But if you keep, if you allow yourself to get the seven and then you take that five point drop down to a two, that's excruciating. And that also reminds us of, of what it was like as a child, as a powerless child, when, you know, dad would get drunk or, you know, the, the house would explode, something would happen. So we have this hypervigilance that keeps ourselves in this chronic state of, of sort of dysphoria, you know, unhappiness and, because and we do that because when things do go bad because in life things things go bad sometimes we perceive that the drop from a 3 to a 2 isn't nearly as bad as the drop from a 7 to to a 2 but you know you're also robbing yourself of a 7 you're also robbing yourself of life yeah you're robbing yourself of that joy and the high vibe living i mean you know joy is a high vibe happiness is a high vibration and then when you're happy you attract more yeah. to your life you know like i'm very spiritual and i enjoy getting in that place of 
feeling good and then attracting more of what is good. But, you know, um, my students, a lot of them who've had the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, they like staying numb. They like staying pessimistic and even self-sabotaging because yeah. that protects them. But it's the interesting familiar. thing is, that, yeah. yeah, it's familiar. And, but the interesting thing is um, when you look at ACEs, the protective factors that really protect students from adversity and mental illness and addiction, those protective factors are mentors, positive school experience, um, access to healthy habits and nutrition. So those are the things that really protect us. And that's why I like talking about different tools and practices on the podcast and different ways that we can actually make those positive connections rather yeah. than kind of spiraling downward. We want to spiral upward. I know it's something I strive to do personally because it's so easy to get overwhelmed. Yeah. Especially if you're sensitive, if you were born a sensitive child. Um, especially if you had chaos in your childhood, because people equate familiarity with security. So if you had a childhood where there was all sorts of chaos, you will unconsciously create chaos in your adult life because that was familiar to you. And your subcortical brain, your feeling brain, equates what was secure with what's familiar. Unfortunately, that's what human beings do. So if chaos was familiar to you as a child you will feel a, a strange sense of familiarity and security with chaos as an adult. But the problem is things often start to unravel, you know, as adults and, and as children too, of course. But uh, the more you spend, you know, after you spend your 30s, 40s, 50s in, in chaos, you've had a couple of divorces or whatever, it's a hard loop to fall out of. I just wanted to know, like, personally, okay, so I have anxiety. I prefer if you use the term alarm, because that's what it is. You okay. have alarm. Okay. So I system. have this yeah. alarm yes. in my system. So I'm such a hard worker, you know, so my anxiety is what holds me back. It's not laziness. It's just anxiety. And because like striving for more kind of creates more anxiety for me. And so I tend to stay with what I'm doing. You know, I've been a teacher and a resilience coach for 10 years and so doing a podcast and thinking about like growing in my career causes anxiety. And so then I settle any advice for someone like me or my listeners who they want to reach their highest potential. They have a vision for changes they want to make in their life, but it's the anxiety that holds them back or the alarm, the alarm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you can use a lot of us anxious people, alarmed people have used that energy to actually move ourselves forward. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I understand completely what you're saying is that it can paralyze us too. So there is this thing in our nervous system where we, we get anxious or alarmed and our sympathetic fight or flight nervous system comes up, it rises up. Now we can use that energy. I use that energy to get through medical school. So, so we can use that energy. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that when it becomes an on switch that we can't switch off, it becomes really harmful. And what will happen is that we'll go into fight or flight for so long that the automatic reaction from our body is to shut off and become immobile. And then we start judging ourselves, judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming ourselves, what I call jabs, because we're not as productive as we'd like to be. The other thing is that we, as we accomplish things, as we move forward in our lives and accomplish these things, that assuages our anxiety or our alarm a little bit. So we get we get sort of operantly conditioned that if we succeed, if we get the next great podcast, if we write another great book, that that will alleviate our anxiety. And it does in the short term. But in the long term, we're on this treadmill that we can't get off, that we put ourselves on because we're we're kind of trying to outrun our alarm. We're trying to outrun our, we're trying to accomplish out of our alarm. And it doesn't work that way. So it's realizing that, okay, can I slow down? Can I allow myself just to slow down? Because, you know, that's one of the things about somatic experiencing. Uh, one of the types of therapy that I, I I think is really helpful for anxiety is the first thing they'll tell you is when you start getting alarmed, slow down, 
slow because your tendency, not you personally, but all of us, is to speed up, go into your head, ruminate, you know, start thinking, mm -hmm. thinking, thinking, thinking. And it has the illusion of working because when you go up into your head, you no longer feel the alarm in your body so much, but mm -hmm. it's always waiting for you. It's always going to be there. So eventually you will wear the system down. You will drop into a place where you're not productive or you have to sleep for a couple of days or whatever. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's like, don't look at your anxiety as necessarily a bad thing because for a lot of people with anxiety, that energy has fueled them to accomplish amazing things. But by the same token, it can also put you into a state of freeze as well. And when you go into the freeze, it's just accept it. Okay. I'm in that phase where I've been working myself too hard for too long. I'm in a freeze. How can I nurture myself through this freeze rather than going, Oh, I've got this. To do. Oh, I've got that to do. Oh, I've got my banking. Oh, my taxes are due, you know, because it'll just start, it'll just start stacking on top of you and realize that you will get your energy back. And the more you can kind of connect with that alarm in you, which is basically what I believe is your sort of wounded, scared, younger self, the more you can connect with that part of you and soothe that alarm, the more you can adopt this kind of nuanced approach to life where you allow yourself to feel grief, you allow yourself to feel joy, and you don't have to railroad yourself down the track of anxiety all the time because it is familiar. Anxiety was familiar to us as a child and whatever is familiar, we will gravitate back to. So we have to learn to treat that at its root cause, which is understand the alarm. And I talk about this in the book is basically finding that alarm and soothing that alarm. And once you start doing that and seeing that it's possible, then you can really start healing from your anxiety rather than just cope with it. Yeah. When all else fails, relax, give your time, give yourself time to chill. If you do hit a wall and some of us, um, the anxiety is fueling activity, but then we just get exhausted or then um, the anxiety affects us like physically, you know, yeah. we feel physically ill. Yep. And so when that happens, you just have to have self-care. Instead, so of, instead of self-reproach, because typically what will happen is like, oh, you've got all this stuff to do and now you can't do it. You're a failure, whatever. You know, it doesn't look at you and say, well, you accomplished these 12 things last week probably because of your anxiety on some level. And now you're, you know, now you're crashing. Now it's nice to be able to get to a point where you can start using your, your energy in a more uh, predetermined way so that you don't exhaust yourself. You don't go into that, that freeze state. And if you do go into the freeze state, it's like, okay, well, this is just a natural response to having a high strung personality or a high strung nervous system and not berate yourself for it. Because the longer you, you condemn yourself for not being productive, the more you allow the anxiety to get worse and worse and worse. And this is the cycle. I mean, this is basically the cycle. Your alarm in your system is, is firing up the worried thoughts of your mind and the worried thoughts of your mind fire up the alarm in your body. And unless you see it, unless you break that cycle, um, you'll, you'll always be in it. Mm -hmm. It's one big dumpster fire. It can be, <laughs> it can be until you see it, you know, and once, and even when you see it, it's hard to, 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 but the only way out is seeing it and, and just, uh, feeling the alarm, allowing it to be there, seeing it as your younger self, and then just allowing that alarm just to be the, the energy, just to feel that energy, as opposed to your immediate, automatic reaction, which is to go into your head and start trying to make sense of it with worries. And because that's a never ending story, you'll never get out of that. Yeah. Feel it to heal it, see it for what it is so that you don't have to be it. Yeah. I will quote you. And every time I use the term alarm, I will mention it's Dr. Russell Kennedy's term alarm. I love it. I love your work. I know that I tend to take small breaks um, take that small breathing break, take a little small break after your shower to stretch out on a beach towel on your carpet. I take these small breaks because it kind of keeps me from like blowing everything up. Cause yeah. in the back of my head, my anxiety is like, well, why don't you just sell your house and move to Durango and be a yoga teacher? You know, like, why are you putting yourself through stress? Like, why don't you just cash out a 401k and take a year off? Like I have a lot of anxiety and then it's thinking in my head. I can tell and I'm like problem solving yeah. on how to get out of feeling anxious. 
but I'll try to use the anxiety to be productive rather than to catastrophize and think of worst case scenarios. Because all you're doing, all you're doing, Alyssa, is just keeping yourself in your head. You have the alarm. I, I think we talked about it earlier off camera was your alarm is in your throat, right? So to avoid feeling that alarm, you go into your head and you get going faster and faster and faster. So the trick with you is, can I, can I feel this alarm in my throat? Can I allow it to be there? Can I put my hand over it? Can I connect with it? Because that's, that's, you know, young Alyssa, that's, that's the younger version of you rather than going up in your head and going all this 401k Durango yoga teacher stuff. Just put your hand on your chest and just say, look, I've got you. And it, and it will take a while for, for young Alyssa to come around. But if you're consistent with her, if you're consistent with her, if you tell her every day when you get up that I'm connected to you, you and I will always be together. There is no scenario where you and I are apart, where I abandon you. I am here for you. I see you, hear you, feel you. I will protect you. I will love you. You are connected to me. Now, for a while, she'll probably resist that. You know, sometimes it's three to six months I have with my people. Like they, they will resist. But eventually they will say, and people send me messages just about every day. It's like, I didn't think I was ever going to be able to connect with my younger self. But after about four months, it really started to, and you have to be diligent. You have to show that child that, that you are going to be there for them because somebody wasn't when you were younger. And you have to show them that that it's okay to trust you and that you will be there for them. That's how you heal. You know, anything else, anything else, you know, EMDR, hypnosis, uh, psychotherapy, yoga, running, anything that doesn't involve you connecting with younger self is a coping strategy. It's not a healing strategy. That overthinking and planning, that's the coping mechanism. Yeah, because you don't want to you don't want to go into your body. You don't want to go into that old alarm because it takes you back into that place of feeling powerless and helpless as a child. So instead, you go up into your head, which is, you know, a coping strategy when you were 12, but when you're 40, um it starts starts wearing you out and that's what happens. So you really have to take the time and connect with that younger version of yourself. That's the only path to healing. Anything else is a path to coping. And there's nothing wrong with coping. It's just that you know, if you want to be able to experience the nuances of all the emotions, you have to connect with that younger version of yourself and show that child that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel joy. It's okay to feel all these things rather than retreating into your head and dissociating and numbing out. That's what happens to most of us with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I'm dissociating, I'm overthinking in my head. Like I'll get stressed on a Zoom call with work. And then all of a sudden, I'm not even in the Zoom call. I'm like in my head, planning my trip to Durango and selling my house and yeah. trying to get out of a stressful Zoom call or something at work, you know? Yeah, because that's the and that's the habit of most of us when we're younger is that that was the only escape we had when we were younger was to go into our head. But it's just realizing and showing that child, look, we have a lot more options now. We're no longer, you know, eight years old trapped in our house anymore. You know, we're quite viable and usually people with anxiety are quite um, adept to, to accomplish things. You know, they use the energy in a way that they accomplish things. And that's where the difference between anxiety and depression kind of comes in. People who are anxious usually have very good imaginations and they're always move, trying to move forward and they have a lot of energy. Depression, on the other hand, is basically when you shut down and you stay and shut down and there's, there's no way out. And then that's a little different, but a lot of people with anxiety use that anxiety to accomplish stuff and it works, but, uh, you know, but around 40, the wheels start coming off and it's like, I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you'll get so exhausted by the anxiety that you will feel depressed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's just really, I mean, the bottom line is finding the alarm in your system because that alarm is your younger self. And then showing that younger self that they are seen, heard, loved, and protected in a way that they weren't when you were younger and that they can tell you what's going on in their lives in a, at a time that they couldn't tell anybody when they were younger. I mean, it's it's really, this is why I like the IFS model. I know we're trying to wind it up here, but we've just sort of hitting into high gear. That's why I like the internal- <laughs> we're going into the yeah, internal yeah. System. Well, internal family systems work is basically finding, you know, the part of you that was bullied, find the part of you that felt alone, find the part of you that didn't feel like they had any friends, like finding those parts 
um, and then using your body as well to connect to those parts rather than, wow, when I was in grade four and was bullied, I'm just going to reject that part of me because it was just too painful. Well, the more you reject that part of you, the more alarm that part's going to feel and the more you're going you're gonna to feel it. So it's really going back and having the courage to go back into a time in your life that was painful, that was stressful, and and show that younger self that you're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. That's really what it comes down to. And there's mirror work. There's all sorts of other things that help. And you know, if you look on my uh, my Instagram page, I I often put stuff on there about how we got here. And the reason why people love my book so much is it explains to them why they feel the way they feel. You know, it's not this cognitive, you know, think better, think positive and you'll get out of your anxiety. It's like now nah, for about four seconds, you know, and then it'll just come right back again. So it's like, it explains to people why you're anxious, why your nervous system is actually acting appropriately based on what you had to do as a child. So now, now you're in this system where you're an adult, but you still believe you're a child. When you get into alarm, we turn into children. So we don't believe that we can actually get better, but we can. And it, it's really about just getting outside of that old subcortical, automatic, unconscious uh, process that typically involves a lot of victim mentality. And then that victim mentality puts us in the physiology of victim with epinephrine and cortisol that doesn't allow us to see the good in our lives and doesn't allow us to see the way out. And so it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I love your work so much because I feel like um, healing anxiety for me has been a physical process. It is. The physical remedies for anxiety help me more than anything. Um, I know like in my work with students, we focused on the mental ways to eradicate or dissolve fear and anxiety and alarm, which is like the 10 cognitive distortions. You right. know, David Burns wrote the book, The Feeling Good Handbook. And I think at the very beginning of that book, he talks about like subconscious anxiety for like two sentences. Yep. And he's like, yeah, you know, some people, they just can't, you know, figure out their anxiety and figure out their... And that's <laughs> one of the biggest, that? that's one of the biggest impediments to people healing is believing that, that it's, there's a cognitive solution to this. There isn't, you know, it's helpful. Cognitive mm -hmm. CBT is helpful but it's not going to heal you. You could do 2000 hours of CBT. It's not going to heal you until you actually go back and find that child in you and show them that they're seen, heard, loved, and protected. That's how you heal. Anything else is coping. Yeah. And I, that's what I saw with my students when I was a resilience coach, seeing them, loving them, nurturing them, that helped so much. And you know, in school, you don't really have a whole lot of time to go deep into feelings because yeah. the bell's going to ring and then it's lunch and you don't want anyone to feel vulnerable and in the middle of healing. So a lot of times we just defaulted to that CBT, that cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy, helping the students see where they might be catastrophizing or thinking in terms of black and white or labeling things. But at the end of the day, all of that resetting your mind has not helped me as much as actually resetting my body and being aware of how I feel and taking that deep breath, taking, taking time to reset physically. And then that really helps me mentally. And I think it helps a lot of people mentally and you have helped so many people. <laughs> Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah. Just finally, I mean, I, I'm not against cognitive strategies. I think we need them. But I noticed in my own healing that it was the somatic strategies that allowed me to start to heal. And then once I started that somatic pathway and started to heal through my body, then all the cognitive work I did started to make real sense. Like it filled up the gaps in the floorboards, as I call it. So I, I'm not against cognitive therapy. It's very helpful and it helps sort of solidify. It puts the icing on the cake. But to make the cake, you really need to go in and find the alarm in your body and fix that first Bake the cake first, then put the icing on it. Oh, yeah, I agree. Healing alarm is definitely mind, body, and in my opinion, spirit. And so yeah. on the podcast, I thank you for being the expert on the somatic and body aspects of healing anxiety. After this, I'm actually going to talk about the mental aspects of how we can change our mindset. My friend Missy and I are going to talk about the 10 cognitive distortions a little sure. bit. Um, and then I also really do believe in the woo-woo spiritual side of 
connecting with ourselves and having faith that uncertainty is just part of life. And sometimes faith and spirituality really helps people face and embrace uncertainty and get through. Yeah. There's a reason why faith is chapter 107 in my book of 108 chapters. It's the longest chapter in the book because it's really important to believe that there is something that's helping you that's other than just you. Because when we have trauma as children, we lose faith in the world and we start thinking that everything is up to us. And if you believe that everything is up to you and you're a seven-year-old, of course, you're going to get anxious. Of course, you're going to get alarmed because you don't feel like you have any power. And then we stop seeing that the world is actually in our favor. The world is actually going to help us. Our own spirit will help us if we don't keep pushing it away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm interviewing Pura Rasa. She's a meditation nice. teacher, she has like 300,000 followers on YouTube. And she calls herself God's favorite child. She's like, what if I am okay. God's favorite child? Because she didn't have the best parenting growing sure. up. So having faith in something, it's almost like a higher power can be parenting us, giving us direction and giving us divine intervention if we believe and you know have faith that things will, like you said, work out for us. So. Yeah. And at least not discounting it. You don't have to be this, you know, firm believer in, in something extraterrestrial or, or religious or whatever, but just not, <laughs> not discounting it, you know, just not just seeing that there is, there, there may well be some force that you can't see or that you lost touch with that has always been with you. It's always been there. And I remember one of my friends who was quite abused when she was younger, she, she said to me, he says, you know, you and me, you know, your abuse was different than mine and your, your childhood pain was different from mine, but the children that are, that are traumatized are held in the hands of God. And it was like, that's all, that little statement's always kind of stuck with me. It's like, oh, okay, well, you're kind of held in the hands of God, you know, we're, and I think in a way we're kind of sacrificial lambs because those of us who had trauma as children are typically the ones that change the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And working in public schools, I couldn't talk about spirituality or religion. No. I would tell the kids, assume everyone is has the best intentions and is trying their best. Have faith that everyone is trying their best and means well. Because a lot of times my little students, they get pessimistic and they're like, oh, well, that teacher, she's just acting nice. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not telling them like have faith in anything, but have faith in the goodness of people and different things like that. That really helps, I think, a lot of times. So Absolutely. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, I'm happy to chat with you anytime. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, everyone. I'm going to link Dr. Kennedy's Instagram website and links to his podcast and his The Anxiety Rx. Thank you so much for the interview. Thanks, Alyssa. We'll talk again soon. If you have an opportunity to tune into your emotions when you're feeling dysregulated, do it. Tune into yourself, place your hand on your heart and regulate those emotions and soothe yourself, soothe your younger self. Next week, I'm interviewing Emily, who is an RN, a nurse midwife and somatic experiencing practitioner. So it sounds like Dr. Russ's wife is a somatic experiencing practitioner when it comes to young children. My next guest next week, Emily from awakenedmother.com is a somatic experiencing practitioner when it comes to mothers and she's a midwife and that episode's for men and women. Emily works with men and women who just want to get in touch with their emotions and feel freer as a result. So she'll talk about somatic experiencing and it's an amazing interview. I already recorded it for you. So I'll be posting that in a week or so on a Monday. And we can tune into what Emily has to say about healing the body and feeling and healing emotions. And then after the episode with Emily, I will have Rasa from PuraRasa.com here on the podcast talking about meditation and spirituality. When it comes to spirituality, that's really helped me dissolve fear because it really gives me that feeling of being protected, being parented and nurtured by a force greater than myself and my connection with a higher power helps me realize that we are not alone 
And it doesn't all come down to us and our efforts and our strategizing and analyzing. We can actually ask for help and receive help and protection and guidance, in my opinion. So Rasa and I are going to talk all about spirituality as one aspect of dissolving fear. Then Missy and I will come on in to the podcast with 10 episodes about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, because I've used it a lot professionally. It's also used quite frequently in Alcoholics Anonymous programs. CBT is very popular and the 10 distortions, in my opinion, aren't really distortions or twisted thinking. They're just part of being human. We default to worst case scenarios. And so we'll talk a little bit about the 10 cognitive distortions. And so for 10 weeks, each week, we'll talk about one of the cognitive distortions. And Missy's hilarious. You might've heard her on previous podcast episodes. So it's going to be fun and entertaining as well as informative. We're kind of doing 10 cognitive distortions for 10 weeks to celebrate that I was a resilience coach for 10 years in public schools. And in this past episode with Dr. Russ, you heard me talk about students. I'm not talking about current students. In the interview with Dr. Russ, I was referring to former students because I'm no longer a resilience coach for kids or adolescents. I strictly work with adults in private practice. And you can actually go to MissAlyssa.com to book a complimentary 22-minute coaching call with me. I just set those up. So if you are interested in discussing where you're at, where you've been, and where you want to go, go to MissAlyssa.com and check out the coaching call options. I'm now strictly in private practice as a resilience coach. So tune in over the next few months for various discussions and guest interviews about physically dissolving fear, mentally dissolving fear, and even how spirituality can help us dissolve fear and make the rest of our lives the best of our lives. That completes our episode. If today's content felt true for you, follow the podcast today or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The mission here is a world where fear doesn't control us. We feel it, heal it, and let go to grow. Have an amazing day. Fill it with opportunities to nurture yourself and maximize your potential. Thank you for being here.